The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. I'm so great. Oh, this is a nice setup. I love it. I feel a little, uh, I'm in the middle of the, kind of the middle of the Colosseum here. Oh, let's pray. God, thank you so much for this night. What a beautiful day. And we thank you for the chance that we have to gather here together. We know that people are coming from lots of different places. Some people are getting the chance to have some vacation and are rested. And some people are working really hard and are very tired. We know there are people here who are in a great place in their life. And they are very uh, full of celebration and full of thanksgiving and, and um, are in that place where they can see you everywhere. And that is such a great place and um, such a, a joyful thing for us to, to be uh, in that place. And for some people, Lord, we know that, that they are having a hard time seeing you. And they are struggling to figure out where you are in their lives. So tonight, as we talk about vision, Lord, I am going to pray just like you prayed for the people listening to you. That you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And that where our eyes have become... Um, jaded and, and we see the world in a certain way that limits us or keeps us from living into the life that you call us to, that you would give us new eyes, give us the ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us tonight. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I know a lot of you and a lot of you I don't know. Um, my name's Dave. Some of you guys know me and um, I am a, uh, I was a pastor for six years, did work with uh, college students and uh, uh, still do work over there with the inn sometimes. And the, um, uh, the, uh, and then I also am a counselor work and been doing that for about eight years. And I do a lot of work with, um, oh gosh, I do actually do a lot of work with people your age. So uh, I have a real heart for, um, as people know, I have a huge, these are the most incredible pens I've ever seen. These, these are gigantic. Uh, those are, I can't wait to use those. Um, thank you, Brad. Um, so, but I do, I have a passion for, for your age bracket. I, I honestly believe that the age bracket you guys are in is one of the most challenging to go through. It is such a time of, of trying to find out who you are, trying to figure out what it is that you're supposed to do here. And there's a sense of trying to prove yourself. Do you have what it takes? It's tough to do. You're also right at the edge of coming out of your family system and, and emerging into your full adulthood. The studies are now that actually adolescence keeps pushing its way forward and forward and forward and forward. Right about 26, 27 is the age now where you find a lot of people go trying to start do that work of how am I different than the family that I come from? What is it that for my family that I want to take? What is it for my family that I want to kind of leave behind and do in a different way? It's a challenging, challenging time. And um, so tonight we're going to talk, we're getting ready for this new year here at Convergence. And let me ask you this, anybody here for the very first time? All right, welcome, welcome. Yeah, a couple of people here, all right, good. Will you guys please, will you raise your hands one more time, one more time. There we go, one more time. No, I'm just kidding, I promise. Uh, the... Uh, Will you guys please that have been here, will you keep your eyes on the people that are new and will you please be courageous enough to go up and introduce yourself? I know they're going, Don, God, I shouldn't have raised my hand. That's all right. Um, but uh, we're glad to have everybody here. 
The uh, um, so let me start it off by this way. We're talking about this this coming year, and one of the things that is so important is um, vision. is so crucial. When uh, when I was a pastor, one of the things that was the first thing on my mind was where is God active? What, where are we supposed to go? We were I was in a church that was in the suburbs, and it was a gigantic church, and they had a college ministry of about 30 people, about half of whom were over the age of 32 and not in college. And I came in, and two of them were like making out in the back row. That's true. I literally came with friends, and I'm like, is that standard? Is that kind of what they knew? We're like, I don't know. I just got here. I don't know what we're supposed to do. I don't know the rules yet, you know. And uh, and it was uh, it was one of the most uncomfortable groups that I'd ever been in. And and so visually, I was like, why are what are we doing? And so uh, what I did was, is I had gathered a, so a handful of people, but about your age, the, to be uh, volunteers with me. And we started asking the question, where does God want us? What does God want us to do? And so I said, look, we were about 20 minutes outside of the city of Milwaukee, and I just took my took two of my leaders, I said, what I'd like you guys to do is to go count. There are six campuses down there. Tell me, how many students are in the city of Milwaukee? And they did. They went They went around and they took, got in touch with all the different, the different colleges, all six of them, and came back and said, you know what, there are 54,000. I said, 54,000. I said, well, who's down there? They said, well, we've got InterVarsity. I said, well, how many people are coming to their thing? And they were like, 30. I was like, great, that's good. Well, how many people, who else is down there? They said, Campus Crusade. I said, that's great. How many people are coming to their thing? About 30. I was like, great. Who else is down there? And they were like, nobody. I said, well, why are we out here in the suburbs when we have all these resources and we could take them down there? I said, because we don't have anywhere to go. I said, all right. So we started praying. We started saying, God, what do you want from us? What do you want us to do? And so we decided, well, let's go to the campus that's the largest campus, and let's start praying that a church down there will open their doors to our resources. Um, and I want to, I told the, the, this, this, the, the different couple leaders, I said, I want to be able to hit this church with a rock from that campus. I want to be that close. Well, churches, you know, they can be a little protective. And they can be a little bit, this is our turf. And so, you know, it's a touchy thing to go in into something like that. Well, lo and behold, we went down there and there was a church that just said, absolutely. We'd love to have you guys come in here. We got not, we got six members. And uh, so we've got some spare time. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy down there, D. Talley was the pastor down there. And D. Talley was a craftsman and he just, you know, he just took it on. He took a whole wing of his church and actually was used to store like tubas and band equipment from some ancient thing that they'd not done for years, but they didn't have anywhere to put this stuff. And he took all that stuff out and started remodeling and, and started putting the offices together and, and made it. I said, I want a place where students can come and it'll be like, home because i know so many people you know what it's like how many people here are, are away from home from their where they grew up a lot of you guys are from, from where from away from where you grew up i want a place that when they come it's going to feel like home well, lo and behold it started taking place and all this time we kept saying there's 54,000 college students in the city of milwaukee we think jesus wants everyone 54,000 college students in the city of milwaukee we think jesus wants every one of them and one of my most um favorite moments it was this time I was walking with this freshman. We're walking down the street, and this freshman looks over at me. He goes, Dave, and I said, yeah. And he goes, and I'd ask him about his life and what was going on. He says, 
you know something, David? I go, what's that? He goes, there are 54,000 college students in the city of Milwaukee, and I think Jesus wants everyone. I said, really? I said, is that right? He goes, yeah, that's right. I said, sounds good. Let's do it. One of the best moments. He had no idea where that came from. No idea. Vision. This idea. And I'm telling you what, that thing blew up to about 500 college students. From all six, there's an engineering school, and the engineers would come, and they're kind of their own species at times, their own way of thinking. And then we had the liberal arts college, and they'd come and want to sit different places, and, you know, and just different publishers, but just this incredible thing in this old church just packed out. Vision. 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 Seattle, Washington. What is the vision of convergence? I want to tell you something. Henry Nowen, some of you guys know Henry Nowen was a, was a, was a guy who was a professor. Uh, he was a priest, worked uh, at um, Notre Dame, and, and decided that he didn't want to be working around the intellectual elite anymore. Totally changed paths and went to start working with the mentally handicapped at the large communities and changed his life and started writing from that place. And his books just have trans... If you haven't read Henry Nouwen yet, read him. It'll change your life. But um, his, his belief was that the moment a community closes down, shuts off, gets tight, and stops opening its doors and reaching out is the moment it begins to die. It's the moment it starts to shrink. Where's the vision. When you guys look out, what do you see? Not just individually, but corporately. Where is this group going? Is the question. You guys got your Bibles? Some of you do, some of you don't. Okay. Acts 10. I'm going to read it to you. All the time, when in the, in the, in the, in all the way through the Bible, you see people having to change their vision and widen their scope. And this is one of those times. What you have here is post Jesus, Jesus was, as he's gone through his life, he's been crucified, he's been, he's been resurrected, and now we have a problem because this new group of people who are still to be called Christians. The Romans will still be calling, considering them like a sect of Judaism. They don't know quite what to make of this. And even the people that are coming up who've been raised in the Jewish culture who have come to know Jesus aren't sure what to call themselves. And so there's this challenge because their theology is starting to be worked out and they're starting to look around. They're starting to try to figure out what is it that who who are we and what are we supposed to do? And P- Peter, who's come from the guy who would whack guys' ears off and get all fiery, and he was a, he's you know kind of rough around the edges. Peter has risen with some of the disciples to be one of the main sources of wisdom, and the and and the and the perspective is we are now Christian, meaning followers of Christ, but we still live as Jewish people. So we have the customs, we have all the rights, we have all the things that we used to do. We live this certain way. And this certain way was, I mean, just imagine that it's not just you, it's your parents, it's your parents' parents, it's your parents' parents' parents. They've been reciting the history and the traditions and all the things that they do. You know how hard it is to go home and say, you know that old Christmas tradition we have? I want to do it different. And you know everybody goes, no, not the tradition. 
My mother literally has this music angel. It's a thing. I was just in Leavenworth and the Christmas store and I found out where she must have bought this angel because I'd never seen so many thousands of these things in one place. It was horrible. And there the, it was a nightmare. I was Sorry for every employee in there. It's like Christmas has been ruined for you. I don't know what you do, but there was these, this angel, you know, and the, and the, and the thing is sweeping around and it's a very dramatic little angel and you'd, <laughs> poor angel, you'd wind her like this and then let her go. And she would start playing a little Christmas carol and, uh, joy to the world or something like that. And the tradition was when we were kids that we knew we couldn't come downstairs and look at the tree or any of the presents until my mother came up the stairs and we'd be listening like crazy. I was just terrible with suspense as a little kid. I'd almost have like, like a heart attack. Just, just couldn't almost stand it. My dad was mean about it. He would just sit there and he'd go, gosh, that one thing that you're going to get so great. See ya. And I'd be like, no, no, I can't handle it. And, um, and so we would wait for this music angel. She would, once that thing started, we knew that Christmas was on and we could leave our rooms and we could come downstairs and there was all this stuff. Well, I remember when I was coming home from college and mom still wanted to do that. And I was like, can we put the angel away? Can we not do the angel? I'm 20. One, Mom, you know, it's like, can we not do, well, okay, you don't want to hear the angel. No, 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 it's okay, we do. It's tough to change, it's our Mom, you can do the angel, it's all right, it's all right. If I went back there now, she'd still want to do it. Traditions are tough, and so Peter has a challenge in that it is tradition and the Jewish way that is so important, and there's this massive, there's a, There's a rift going on. What do we do with the Gentiles, the people who everybody else, what do we do with them? What do we do with them that are eating certain foods that we look at as unclean? What do we do with with the Gentiles who have certain practices in their home that to us are unholy? That question of holiness, very, very difficult. Difficult today how we see certain things. And then we see another group come up and they don't do that thing. They do communion different. It looks a little weird. We get a little offended. It's tough. It still comes up today. Well, this is what happens. Listen to this. Now, there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, the centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. Now, what that means, what, what the author of Acts is immediately getting to is this guy's controversial. Because he is a member of the Roman army, and it's an elite force. This, this, this force would have been persecutors of the Jewish people. So he's setting out right off the bat that this isn't, no, this isn't just an ordinary Gentile. This guy is a guy that Jews would have been very suspicious of. Some of them, in, if he had been in their town, would have probably been looking at him and known certain things he had done that would have been hurtful to them. Whether it would be oppression, whether it be violence, this guy is already a guy, he's putting this guy up and saying, this guy is someone that you would not associate with at all if you were a Jewish person in that day. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So there's this 
tug of war in that he's serving the Roman army. He has certain duties he has to fulfill, certain things he has to do. But this man is also what they would call in that time a God-fearer. A God-fearer was someone who was not of Jewish descent, but who was believing in the Jewish God. Not living the Jewish way, but believing in the Jewish God. They would call them God-fearers. About the ninth hour, three o'clock, of the day he... He clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who was called Peter. He is staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. And a lot of times in the in those days the, the rooftops would have been like a patio. You would have had like this you would have had your, your downstairs and then the, your your upstairs would have been commonly used. People would go up there all the time. And he became hungry and he was desiring to eat. Oh let me let me yeah. So Peter went up on the housetop the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and was de- desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he, and, be, and he beheld the sky opening up, and a certain object, like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air, and a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. This would have sound crazy. Um, for him to be, this would have sounded like God is contradicting himself. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what this division which he had seen might be, might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But arise, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so he invited the men and gave them lodging. And on the next day, he arose and went away with them, and some of the, some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea 
Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And when it came about that Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I am too just a man. And, and as he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. What you see Peter doing is going through a change of vision. When I was a kid, I remember going to Disneyland. How many of you guys have been to Disneyland? What I was amazed at is how they had managed to build their park around a gigantic mountain. It was incredible. It was like Mount Rainier right in the middle, and they built their entire park all the way around it. I was so excited. Every time we go down there, I was just amazed at this, this gigantic mountain right in the middle of this park. And I was so excited that they had managed to build a ride all the way through it and avoided that horrible monster that lived twice in that mountain in two different places. Very scary. Very life-threatening. Um, very majestic. Very majestic. Incredible that they spoke to me, per manister sentados, por favor, when I got into the little pears and cinnamon toast, is what I thought they were saying for years. I thought that's what they were saying. Why are they saying pears and cinnamon toast? Got into the little car, and I remember going around just thinking how great it is to take a ride in the mountain. It is so incredible. And I remember going back when I was, like, in my 20s, I was working at a Christian camp down there, and I remember coming and waiting to see the gigantic mountain and being stunned to see that the mountain was fake. One, it's not real. <laughs> Some of you, that's going to be news. You're going to have to go visit and check this out yourself. And to see that the mountain wasn't gigantic. It's not that big. It was it had shrunk. Somebody had taken it and obviously shrunk it. That's right, you know. And uh, the, the monster was no longer real. Uh, the little red eyes, you know, that little... You know, that little, that thing. Um, I remember the feeling of having my vision shrunk. I mean, having literally see something, having my entire framework for what that thing was shrink. Some of you guys go back to places now when you were a little kid. You remember the things being a certain height and you come back and suddenly they're, they're just so small. Um, I literally remember being a ring bearer in, a wet, in my uncle's wedding, and the, and the pews that they had in the church at the time were right at my forehead level, which is way too big for a pew. And I remember coming back, and they were down here, and it just was just unbelievable to see my vision change. When I was in middle school, I remember going to school, and there was we were bused, and we were, we were there was, so they would give us a metro bus. And then the back of the bus was where all the cool kids sat. And I remember just wanting to be included in that group of people. And so I remember just this slow campaign, just every day sit one row back and see if I'd get rejected. See, every day I'd kind of set one more back and if I could make it all the way through and nobody said anything, it was like good, good news. And I got out there. Well, I remember finally the one day and then the back of the bus, it was like all the seats kind of faced each other. I made the move and I sat down in the back of the bus and I remember Terry, this beautiful, beautiful girl. Everybody liked Terry. Blonde haired girl just look over at me and she goes, You kind of look like a skeleton. <laughs> and I just 
remember the feeling of like someone had socked me in the stomach. And I remember Keith going, yeah, kind of like you'd have to run around in the shower in order to kind of get wet like that. And then his little his buddy John going, yeah, but you'd have to be careful because then you could fall through the grid of the shower thing and you'd be lost forever. And I remember this feeling of just, you know, you know that feeling? It was just that feeling of, of just being labeled. And I just was, I, I thought that must be exactly the way it is. And I, I learned that day that my physical body was unattractive. That I was not appealing to people. That's what I learned. I learned that I was somehow not um, what I was supposed to be. And I carried that image around. I want to tell you something. I carried that image around for a long time. All the way into college, I kept thinking that there's just no way anybody would ever want to be with me because I'm too skinny. And so for me, like now exercise is a regular part of my life, but I got to tell you, that didn't start from a good place. That started from a place of thinking, if I can just work out enough, maybe one of these days I'll be attractive. It's a tough thing. Attraction's a tough, tough deal. We feel certain things that got said to us a long time ago, and we're still working them out. We're still holding them as if they define us and, and, and make us who we are. Painful, painful, painful. You know, it's interesting. I became friends with Terry and Keith and John later on uh, when we were all a lot older. They didn't even remember saying those things. I had no memory of it. I never forgot it. It wasn't until later on that I finally started letting my vision of myself start to catch up and just start accepting it in a different level. Does that make sense? We can be labeled in a way that changes our vision. How you got talked to, what role you played in your family. You were the smart one. You were the one that made everything okay. You were the troublemaker. You were the funny one. You were the dumb one. You're the clumsy one. However you were defined or boxed in can change your vision. And you can see yourself over and over again. And then you go into a new place and lo and behold, you start playing that role over and over and over again. It's tough. It's tough when you've been given a vision. What you see Peter doing here is he's been raised a certain way. And you've seen him raised to see a certain way. And he's gone through one of the most radical transformations in all of history where Jesus is coming down and saying, it is finished. All the sacrifices, all the stuff that you used to do to be right with God is done. I've done it all. It's all finished. Now it's through me that you can walk free. What's Jesus's mission statement when he comes right off the bat? What does he say? I've come to what? Free the captives. Jesus had this enormous investment in setting people free, and yet you see them after he has been resurrected. Now he's, he's gone back up to be with the Father. You see them still struggling to live into this freedom. Their eyes and how they see the world is still so active. And it's in this moment in chapter 10 of Acts of what they're trying to get across to you is that at some point in our discipleship, we have got to have new vision. How do you see Yourself. How limited do you see your abilities? We want to reach Seattle? I don't do that. I don't talk to people about what I believe. That's not PC in Seattle. We know that. Leave well enough alone. Listen, I want to tell you something. At some point, 
you, what I'm hoping for is that in your walk of discipleship, as you are not just going to church, but literally following a living Jesus, my hope is that you have a moment like Peter, where suddenly you begin to look around and see the city with the eyes of maybe how he would see it. Imagine for a second. Use your imagination. Imagine you and Jesus just walking down the road, right out here, 45th. Take a left, walk down about two blocks, then walk about a block in. You'll be in the Greek system. Now you watch all these kids walking back and forth across the street. Watch how they dress. And imagine for a second, you could just be with Jesus and Jesus would be looking at these kids and he'd point to them. You say, see that one right there? She thinks if men don't want to have sex with her all the time that she's not worth anything. So she dresses like that. I don't know what I'm going to do. I want to reach her. I want to get her. Because what I want for her is to know that a God knows her, made her, knit her together, loves her just as she is inside. That she has something to contribute to the world that her parents have never named. And so she thinks that all she has is her physical beauty. I want to reach her. I want to set her free. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Now imagine you sit there and you see what he sees. You see that guy right there? He thinks that the world is a battle. Is a battle. So everywhere he goes, he is in a battle with whatever is in front of him, whether it's his friends, whether it's the school, whether it's the church, whether it's the government. Every time he goes into his work, he's been fired twice because everywhere he goes, he's in a battle. You know what happened? Years ago, his dad left when he was seven years old. You see him? I want to reach him because I want him to know that the world is not always a battle. That every time he goes into a place, he doesn't have to start choosing sides. He doesn't have to start thinking of people as if they're going to take advantage of him every step of the way. I want him to know what it's like to live one day with his guard down. I want to reach him. I don't know what I'm going to do. Vision. At some point, you guys in our discipleship, we have got to start seeing the world around us through the eyes of a Jesus who loves people. And I got to tell you, when I'm going about my day and I got bills to pay and I've got things to do, it is easy to go fast, speed up, speed up, speed up. All the media around you, you are slammed by media. Count the minutes. The media is bam, bam. And we get faster and we get faster and we get faster. We try to survive it. We try to survive it. Get from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And all this time, at some point, when will it be that you individually and us collectively slow down, look out, and pick people that we see and just for a second see them with the eyes of Jesus 
new vision. Well, I don't talk to people like that. They live their life a certain way. I don't talk to them. I'm afraid if, if I get too close to them, I'll be unholy. Jesus broke that all the time. At some point in our discipleship, we're going to need new vision. Let me tell you, be careful. You poor people, you can't see. Here you go. Can you see? Kind of? There we go. At some point, you guys, with new vision, you watch Peter do this. You see this sense of him fighting it. I don't want to see a new way. And then you see him suddenly, you see this thing happen. And suddenly it's like Peter's heart changes. It's like this sense of, oh my gosh, I've been living with all these trappings, all this stuff, all this way of being, and it's useless. You start looking around the world with new eyes. I want to tell you something, your heart's going to change. It literally, when I drive 45th, I can see those kids crossing back and forth. I do not drive that street the same way I used to when I was in college. I see it utterly different. You walk into your business. Your guard goes up. You want to look a certain way. You want to perform a certain way. You want people to perceive you a certain way. What would it be like if before you go to work, you slowed down just a bit? And said, Lord, give me the eyes to see what you see. When you walk into your your, your work and just start noticing. And suddenly you can start to see in people's face. And they're doing the best they can to hide it. But you can see the pain that they're carrying. You see it. Or you see their insecurity. And maybe that person that hurt you a certain way. That enemy you have. That one that said that one thing about you that you've never forgotten. Maybe you look back and you see him suddenly. And instead of a guarded heart or a battled heart or a hateful heart, suddenly your heart starts to melt. You can't make it happen, you guys. I'm telling you. It's one of those things that you've got to let happen. Let God do this in your life. Give you new eyes and say, I want to show you the people that I continually care about. When you do, like Peter letting in Cornelius, like Peter traveling and walking into his house, suddenly Peter's seeing a group of people that God has come for that he's been totally overlooking. If you get a new heart, there's going to come a time where you got to take a step. In that passage, one of the most important verses, I think, in the Bible right there is when it says that Jesus or that Peter stepped in. You can imagine this doorway, you guys. Imagine that he walks up to Cornelius' house and all of the the training that he's had, all of the years of his parents telling him how he's supposed to be, all this pressure of people looking at him to lead the church. Peter, the keys of the church are in your hands. You can imagine, this guy's a fisherman. He hasn't gone to seminary. He hasn't gone to college. He hasn't gone to anything. He's just done the best that he can. He's got a lot of pressure on him. You know what it's like to have social pressure on you. You know what it's like to be told implicitly by people that you will be a good person if you do what with your life? It's almost incalculable that you will turn down a promotion. Even if that promotion asks that you now spend 70 hours a week at work. Because it's a promotion, right? It is so difficult to let our eyes have a new vision. 
once a vision takes place, to let our, our heart change. At some point, you guys, I'm telling you, there's going to be a moment where you're going to have to step into it. And maybe that is a conversation with somebody that you have blocked off in your world because you hate them for what they do, what they say, what they sound like, how they dress, what they act like, however you've boxed them in. Gottman is a guy who's just down by the UW. He's, got, he's a famous researcher in relationships. One of the key things that he talks about is something called sentiment override. Sentiment override is what happens when a certain amount of circumstances take place. We typically, if they are positive, and this is the ratio, five to one. If they're positive, we typically develop what's called positive sentiment override, which means somebody does, I don't know if I'm spelling that right, um, the, which means typically if you see somebody at your work or you see somebody in your family and typically on an average basis your interactions with them are typically positive and they were liter they are literally in their in their in their uh, lab they are literally watching couples and what they're literally watching for is how often do they turn towards each other or turn away from each other when they're talking and if they see the, each other turning towards there's just a slight turning towards when I have couples come into my office and they're talking, what I'm watching for is when they're talking, are they looking away? Are they looking neutral? Are they looking towards each other? Because I can tell a lot by how much they're interacting. You walk in, are you looking this person in the eye? Are you, are you engaging them or do you kind of deal with them kind of at an arm's length? Well, Gottman says that when there's a, when there's a five to one positive ratio, meaning that typically five of them, five experiences are, are positive, one is not positive, we will give people the benefit of the doubt. We see them in a positive light. And so if they have a bad day, we'll typically chalk it up as a bad day. Or they were maybe having, they maybe had a bad morning. So they're a little grumpy. But you know what? They're this, they're great, they're this way. When this ratio goes down to 4.5 to 1, we start drifting. If this ratio goes down, we develop what's called negative sentiment override. And what this means is that when this ratio goes down, we typically start seeing people through a certain lens that's negative. They didn't just do something dishonest. They are dishonest. They didn't just do something selfish. They are selfish. They didn't just do something immature. They are immature. You understand? What his research says is that they can watch people, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but it's, it's a crazy statistic. If they can watch people for 30 minutes, they say, they can predict, or 15 minutes, they can predict with about an 85% accuracy rating of whether that couple's going to be together in five years. That's crazy. If they say that if they can watch people for a half an hour, they can predict with almost like a 96% accuracy rating. What that basically means is that people, we are wired very similarly. It means that we develop a vision that gets coded quickly. 
So that means that all of us are walking around, and, and there's a whole bunch of theories on this, is that part of it is that our brain is trying to save space by categorizing people. Does that make sense? So to break out of our vision is not necessarily easy. And you have to be aware that we're walking around all the time and we're slotting people. We're putting them in the boxes. What Jesus is calling us is to interrupt that process. He's saying what's going to make us different. And you guys, we got to look around at the church and we can ask ourselves some pretty incriminating questions. Is when we think of the church, do we think of people who are looking with fresh eyes? Or do we think of people who are looking with old eyes, boxed in, and guarding their fort? Does that make sense? Slotting people into this category or this category. It's tough. It's tough. Peter had to be completely awakened to see something new, and it was pivotal that he did. You guys, I'm watching our time. I'm going to give you one tool that's helpful for me. I was going to do something else, but I'm going to give you a different tool. I was thinking about it. There is a, when I was about 32 years old, I, the, the, I, had, I had decided that I was going to go and be a, a therapist rather than a, than a pastor. And part of that, there's a lot of different reasons, but part of that was that I didn't feel like I was a pastor all the time. There was a part of me that in that where I was in the Midwest, it was very strict. It wouldn't be okay for me to go out to a restaurant and have a beer because someone from the church might see me having a beer and they might stumble and eventually they're going to be a Satan worshiper. I mean, it's just, you see the logic goes that way. And so you couldn't do that because you wanted to be, and I'm, there's a whole First Corinthians about not making people stumble and I get that. It was hard, but it didn't fit me. Because some of the best conversations that I have with guys are over a beer. I love it. So what do I do to be authentic? It was a really tricky situation for me and tough to figure out. Well, one of the theories that got proposed to me that has been the most helpful is what is called parts theory. It's okay if I give you this? Parts theory says this, that imagine that you are made in the image of God, and if God is three but one, perhaps you are too. Perhaps there is more to you than just simply one person. You might be, in your world, the engineer. Now that's great until you go to Disneyland. And you're walking around and you're saying, wow, this is impossible. Mice are way smaller than that. (laughs) That's ridiculous. I've seen them like that. That one's like that big. They don't have mittens on either. It's good when you go to Disneyland to let another part of you come out, which may be the little kid that can let it go for a second. You're saying, Dad, just be a little kid for a day. We all hear it. We hear ourselves talk like this. A part of me thinks this. A part of me thinks that. Or I hate myself when I do this. We hear Romans 7. We hear Paul struggling. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I do want to do. A wretched man that I am living in this mortal body of flesh, this idea of being torn. Well, parts three says that you are actually a very complicated person. It's the idea that a part of you might be an engineer, but a part of you might not be. 
A part of you might be a salesperson, but please don't be a salesperson around your friends. They will not want to be your friend anymore. Some of you are lawyers. That's a great thing. One part of you loves to take a topic and argue your side and take down the person's opinion slowly till they don't make any sense and they recognize the rightness of your view and they thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for demolishing my opinion and making it seem so incredibly crazy. No. Don't be a lawyer around your friends, people, right? It's good to have that part of you, but hopefully another part of you is completely different. Listen, I have a part of me that is a therapist, for sure, but a part of me rode for years, and that part is not a therapist. I don't care about your background. When I'm in the boat, if you're in my way, I'm probably going to hit you with my oar. That's not therapeutic at all. I'll maybe give you my card afterwards so I can undo the damage that I've done. I'm sorry. There's a part of me that is the pastor. Anybody who knows me, all my all my friends, Ryan over there, John knows that. Anytime, the reason why I like this group set up is that I'm always about gathering people together. I love it. When I'm doing a, a, a conference or whatever, I want to, it's my goal that nobody leaves feeling by themselves. Probably the reason why you saw me make sure I know who the new people are. I don't like people feeling like they're the only one that don't, doesn't know anyone. I don't like that. I want to gather people and have make them feel family. But not all of me. I used to tell my college kids, I love you. Do not call me after nine. I don't love you that much. And they would go, oh, come on, Boots. I'm like, ha, ha, no, seriously, don't call me. I am not that way. After about nine, I turn into kind of a monk. There's kind of that. I have a part of me that is just definitely a very solitary monk. I kind of like doing my thing. It's just part of me. Well, one of the things that you can challenge yourself, and this is what I'll do with people, I'll literally, this is just something, you can do this at home, is that I'll draw a square just like this, and I'll draw, imagine like a boardroom table. Imagine over here, I'll just do mine. You got over here, there's definitely a part of me that's a pastor. You definitely have a part of me that's a therapist. Guess how popular it is when I come into my friends and try to be the therapist? They love it. No, they don't. Oh, there's the therapist. Turn it off. Okay. I have a part of me that's an artist. I grew up with it. I have music all over. I have a whole room designated to music in my house. I mean, I, I, there's, I am passionate. Kyle knows this. I've done, I've done, I just did my own CD and I can't wait for your guys' CD. When's it coming out? All right. <laughs> I was sitting there, literally sitting there going, oh, when is that coming out? I have that part of me. I have a part of me that's a competitor. One of the reasons why I can work with men, I do a lot of work with guys that will not work with anybody. And one of the reasons that I can do that is that I don't bring my competitor in. When they come in, they don't feel like they have to fight me for who's the top dog in the room. Very crucial. If I bring that part in there, it would never work. Just wouldn't. I have a part of me that's a warrior, for sure. I have a part of me that's a little kid, gets scared. I have a part of me that's a teenager. I can go on. The idea of parts is that you have another part too, and this would be the emerging adult. And the emerging adult's job is first to know 
all the different parts of who you are. God made you complex. You've been put into one spot and you see the world a certain way. Well, what other parts are there? You got a part of you that's tough all the time. Is there a part of you that's not? You got a part of you that's always cracking jokes because you're not sure if you said something serious that people would take you serious. But you have a part of you that's very serious. What do you call that part? Typically with parts, you have to give them a name that the part wouldn't feel dis put down by. So you can't, oh, it would, usually I, I'm not going to use the word I usually use. But imagine that a part would say, well, that's the dumb one. I have that dumb part of me. Well, typically what parts means is that this idea is that you can literally do what's called internal fusing. I'm getting a little technical here for you guys, but it, internal fusing is when you jump into one part. And that's the engineer that walks into Disneyland. Or that's the part of you that walks in that feels like, that. I know some women, that their stance in life is to become very, very little. Their voice gets way up in their head. So when they talk, they're just like, oh my gosh, I want to be a woman of strength and wisdom. Everything comes out as a question. I really want you to take me seriously. Okay, now that's not a bad part, but in terms of leadership, it doesn't work. And so it can be an incredible, incredible experience if you're sitting with someone to see a different part come out. Listen, I had one guy come in. You guys tracking with me? Are you guys okay? One guy came in to see me. And he's wearing his Adidas sweats. He sits down in my chair. <laughs> now, I don't care if people want to sit in my chair. That's okay. But not many people do. I mean, it's kind of, there's there and there's the couch. It's like, that's kind of where you're supposed, you know, you sit there, but you can sit over here. It's fine. He doesn't. He sits down in my thing. He takes up about five by five. <laughs> and I say, so why are you here? He's like, I don't know. I'm not sure I even need to be here. And uh, so I'm like, who am I talking to? I'm talking to the athlete. So I ask, what do you do? He goes, play soccer all the time. Love soccer. <laughs> Pretty much live, breathe, and eat soccer. Sounders rule. I have my little horn thing in the car right now, ready to go. <laughs> if I have to go to a surprise soccer game, I go. <laughs> So that's fine. And so we talk, and I'm not, you know, that's that's totally okay. There is a part of him. Now, the athlete, this idea, if you take this, is that in his world right now, the world is a competition. In his world, there's a winner and there's a loser. In his world, it is not okay to not be tough. I like that. It's great. If I have a soccer team I'm putting them together, putting together, I want him. If I have to go down and do something tough, like, you know, going down and painting houses or do whatever that's gritty or whatever, I want him coming with me. That is great. Then he starts telling me stories about his dad. And uh, what I watch is slowly but surely he takes up less space. And I start watching him put his legs together and I start watching him get kind of covered up and his voice shifts from way down here to kind of more up in his throat. And I watch that guy start crying. 
because he feels like the only time his dad ever saw him, ever noticed him, ever gave him anything like recognition, when was when he was out on the soccer field. And even if he played a great game, if he didn't score a goal, his dad had a list of things he could have done better. And so he spent his life trying to figure out, how am I going to get that guy's approval? Well, next week he comes in, kind of dressed like this. And he sits down, and it was as if a whole different person had come. A different part of him was showing up. This part of him had feelings. This part of him wasn't even thinking about soccer. This part, if he was go down to his car right now, would listen to different music, probably, probably be thinking about different things. Different parts. Now, some people, because it was like schizophrenic. No, 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 no. This is that feeling that we all have. It's like, nah, just you're, you're complex. God made you in an incredibly complex way. And that one of the tasks that you have in adulthood is to start to know these different parts and then to start put, giving them a vision that all will work towards. You get the 42-year-old that you've known all your life is the responsible one. They talk kind of like this. And they're really glad to meet you. And they're really got their things together. And their house is clean. And go check out the trunk of my car. I just had a detail. It's all together. Everything is all together. Look at my kids. I have them perfectly spaced out two years apart. They're all perfect. Get in line. I have them all perfectly. Get in line. I have them all perfectly together. They're great kids every day. I make sure of that. That's great. Look at my beautiful wife. She looks just like a picture. <laughs> And then one day, he snaps, and he's gone, and you see him trade in his Volvo when he comes in the, you know, the whole stereotypical, comes in with his new red sports car, he's like, what up, dude? Total break, and people will do this, and you'll see this in a breakup, people will do this all the time, all of a sudden, a different part comes forward, and they'll be looking at each other and going, I don't feel like I ever knew this person. You'll hear parents of divorce say that, I don't know if I ever loved them. Well, parts theory says, well, that's because a part of you is now speaking that's never spoken before, and that part may never have loved that person. Absolutely. If you want to change your vision, people, one of the things you can do is you can slow down and imagine that a different part of you would look at the same thing that the old part of you has been looking at. Just stop for a second. Part of me is the achiever, trying to achieve. I have that in me. There's a part of me that's a pastor. Take a breath. It literally is almost like just relax a little bit. It's almost like a clutch. You can imagine Peter walking into that house, taking a breath. And a part of him was the, the upholder of the Jewish rules, the esteem of it, the place in society of it. He takes a breath and he walks in the door and you can imagine a different part of him. Part of him that's more like a shepherd. And suddenly all these Gentiles with all their food that's so weird and so unholy, he looks out and he sees sheep that have gone astray that need to be gathered in. And his heart changes because he had new vision. He gets a new heart. Once his new heart takes place, he's got to start taking a step Start tending to these sheep. What's he going to do now? 
the old person that's upholding the Jewish law isn't even around anymore. It's the shepherd. You got a part of you that God has made that if you were to look out at the world, I promise you, you'll see it different. God has equipped you. Your, ta- your task is to let him use all of who you are, not just one part that society has told you to be. Whether it's your parents, whether it's your school, whether it's your friends, whether it's your work, you are more than one person. That's the idea of parts. You are complicated. God made you comprehensively complex, and that is an incredible thing. If you want one tool on how to look out at the city of Seattle with a different vision, check your life. Where do you see a different part of you coming into play? that might see things differently. And once that part of you starts looking at the world, what would you do? How would you handle things differently? By the way, anybody notice what this looks like from the Bible? Anybody see it? Say? Yeah, with? What? Kind of looks like Jesus and the disciples. The idea of parts is that there is a part of you that Jesus is, that is, that is this wise, calm leader that needs to be grown up. There's these other parts that are younger that are coming up. And the discipleship is letting Jesus grow all of these into a vision that is more cohesive for all the parts to work with. So you don't have your 40-year-old meltdown. Does that make sense? I'm giving you a fairly complex, I just gave you about a semester and a half of a very complex theory. So some of you are going, what the heck is that guy talking about? I am totally okay with that. That's totally fine. What, I'm, what I want to do is give you something practical to do so you don't walk out of here going, well, I don't know what to do next. What I want to challenge you with is some of you Look at your world through one set of eyes all the time. I'm going to challenge you to take a breath when you walk out, relax, and imagine there's another part of you that you can see come out all the time in another arena of your life. And imagine that part, you could name it, and then imagine that that part could look and see the world. Then you suddenly see things that you've never seen before. And then you start just noticing, what do you want to do next? Maybe there's some of you who are walking right in the middle of a ministry that you've been too afraid to work or walk into because it doesn't meet the standards of income that you've set up for yourself. Or maybe those people are scary to you. Or maybe that person in your office has been an enemy to you. And you're too scared to build a bridge. But maybe another part of you wouldn't be scared at all. That's the challenge. There's other ways. God, thanks for your time tonight with us. I pray that you will help us um, in this challenge of vision. Lord, you know you called us all the time to see with new eyes and to hear with new ears because we get jaded. We start seeing things in a way that we just can't see out of. And in a ministry where we come together every week and we meet together and we just start getting used to singing our songs and listening to the talks and then going about our work, Lord, I'm going to pray that you interrupt us in a great way 
to let us see with your eyes the people that are walking around our world, our small communities, our city, and ultimately out to your world. And then begin to take steps with a heart that is changed for those people. And trust that you will equip us on a journey. My Lord, my personal prayer for convergence this year is that this place would be a place of vision. Thank you for John, because I know that is what he is. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen.